The sky isn't falling, it actually can't. So reap, so reap, don't forget to eat. Keep your acorns away from my pie. You'll never hear a song called singing in the sleet. Brown grass is here for a while, guys. Is it just me or is it getting dark earlier than it did on June 21st? Real humans don't hibernate. Do fish celebrate anything? I bet beavers hate the word pelt even as a verb. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and what you're now listening to is a podcast that, in many if not all ways, is about the outdoors and the many if not all things found therein. Now, as regular listeners to the podcast know, we've had some ghost problems going on around here, the primary manifestation of which was a short episode that the ghost released while pretending to be me, and which I have been unable to take down because of some sort of trick of hauntery. For a couple of months now, I've been considering bringing a medium into my home to attempt to communicate with the ghost so that we can ask it to leave us alone, or at least restrict its interference to an agreed-upon segment on the show, but I've been reluctant to do so because mediums are costly, and also because the thought of enduring the medium's small talk before and after they speak with the ghost is unbearable. I just envision it being tough to get them out of my house once they're in. What if they want to drink? What if they want to sit down? Well, last month I asked you listeners for advice, for recommendations of solutions that would reduce the risks of exorbitant expense, major time commitments, and discomfort for me. And to be honest, most of you failed me. But one of you came through, and I forget your name, whoever you are, but thank you for your suggestion. Today, we're going to call a sort of medium hotline where, according to the website, a professional medium will be able to deal with our ghost problem over the phone. Now, this service does charge by the minute, but as long as it doesn't take too long, it's still going to be a lot cheaper than actually paying a medium to drive over to my house, and without the face-to-face interaction, I feel like there's going to be a lot less social pressure to engage in small talk, so I really feel like, as long as it works, this is going to be the best option for us. I'm also going to record the call and put it in the show, since, based on the small sample size we have so far, that seems like the only way we'll maybe actually be able to hear the ghost's response and know for sure that this actually worked. Anyway, so the service is called Medium Line, which I guess is pretty straightforward, and it's a 900 number, so let's just give it a call here. Wait, 
eight. Wait, wait, no, wait, wait. Well, hold on. I thought this was recording. Are you actually there? You're just reading all this now? Sir, please wait until you hear your reason for calling and then say the appropriate number clearly into the phone. But, but why? You're here now. It'd be so much faster for me to just explain the problem to you. And then you wouldn't have to go through your whole list, especially since my problem is kind of strange, okay? Because there's this ghost haunting my podcast, but you can only hear it after the episodes are posted, I think. Uh, except it posted its own episode a few Sir, weeks ago. Please, it would be helpful if you would just wait until your reason for calling is read, at which point you should say the corresponding number clearly into the phone. We have... 106 more options to get through, so I'm sure yours will be among them if you'll just be patient. 106? I'm, I'm paying by the minute. Why should I have to pay just to listen to you read through options when I could just tell you my problem right now and we could get on to solving it? That's not how our system works, sir. We do this for your convenience. But it isn't convenient for me to pay to sit and listen to you read through a bunch of options that have nothing to do with me. Would you rather have a medium come into your home and hang out all day, wandering around your house and announcing that she's standing in a cold spot or feels great sorrow coming from your closet? <sighs> no, I guess not. Then please, abide by the system that we have in place. All right, fine. Okay, then, where was I? You just did number eight. Okay. <clears throat> If you're calling because your podcast has been haunted and interfered with by ghosts, say nine. Are you serious? That just happened to be the next option on the list? You probably regret being so impatient now. If you had just let me do my job from the beginning, you'd probably already be rid of this ghost. All right, well, whatever. Let's just get on with it now, then. You have to say the number corresponding to the need clearly into the phone. Nine! Nine! Let's go! All right, sir. I see that you've chosen number nine, so that must mean that you have a ghost either haunting your podcast or interfering with it in some way. Yes, I do. All right. Well, this is actually a very common problem. Very typical. Really not unique at all. Or special anyway. So we should just be able to deal with it pretty easily. This is very common. We deal with this exact problem a lot. Okay, well, good. I just want it to stop. Okay, and you have me on speakerphone? Yeah, you're on speaker. Okay, now please, I need you to remain silent while I attempt to contact the ghost and build a rapport with it. Build a rapport? What's that mean? If you want a ghost to honor a request or it stop haunting a podcast, you have to build a rapport with it you have to establish a friendly relationship so that it feels inclined to do what you want it to. Um, okay, you're the expert. Just do your thing, I guess. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> ghost? Are you here? Is there a ghost? Oh, there you are. Hello. How are you today, Ghost? I'm glad to hear that. Very well, thank you. Although, it's a little over past here today. Mm, yes. Well, no, it's not too chilly, but I prefer just a little more sunshine. Right? Oh, I totally agree. Well, I like rainy days and I can enjoy them at home with a book and some tea. Oh, really? That's interesting. Me too. I never have my umbrella with me when I need it. 
Well, if I had a garden, I probably saw a little. Ex- excuse me, time. excuse me. What is this? What are you doing? Sorry, ghost. Hold on just a second. Excuse me, sir. I asked you not to interrupt. I'm building a rapport with the ghost, like I told you. You're just making small talk with it. I'm paying to listen to you make small talk with a ghost. Sir, small talk is how you build rapport with a ghost, or anyone for that matter, when you're meeting for the first time. That's the goal of small talk in modern society. Do you want this ghost to stop haunting your podcast or not? Yes, but please try to get to the part where you ask it to leave soon. Well, I'll do my best, but I can't rush these things or they won't work. Okay. Ghost? Still there? Sorry about that. No, no, I know, but still. Yeah, well, you know, some people just haven't been raised that way. Well, I guess I don't know about that. Yes, ignorance, exactly. Well, you said it, not me. (laughs) So true. Anyway, where was I? Oh, that's right. Well, if I'm running errands, I definitely prefer a nice sunny day. Especially if I'm grocery shopping for some reason. My least favorite errand? Hmm, that's a tough one. Um, I guess I don't mind grocery shopping. I don't mind going to the bank. I don't mind clothes shop. In fact, I kind of really enjoy clothes shopping. I know, right? Oh. I know, right? Right? I know! Ah! Stop! Enough! Ask the ghost to leave now! Tell it to leave! Sorry, ghost. Excuse me again. Sir, this is the second time you've interrupted, and I've asked you... Tell it to leave now! That's enough small talk. You've built enough rapport. Sir, you don't know what you're talking about. I usually prefer to build a rapport for at least 20 or 30 minutes before I even make a request of a ghost. 20 or 30 minutes? I called this service to avoid small talk, but that's all it is. Except it's even worse because I only hear one side of it. It's somehow even more inane than regular small talk. Tell the ghost to leave now. That's why I called you. If I ask the ghost to leave now, I can't guarantee they'll listen to me. In fact, I don't care. I don't care. Just do it. Ghost, I'm sorry. I know this is rude of me to ask so early in our conversation, but could you do me a big favor and stop haunting this rude man's podcast? Please, I'm asking for me, not for him. It'll be good for my business if I can have another success that I can refer to. And, in my opinion, I think you could actually haunt better. Oh, okay, okay, thank you. Thank you, Ghost. Goodbye! Sir? Yes. It says that it's going to think about it. But I think it's going to decide to leave your podcast alone now. Finally, thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for calling me in line. We have been happy to assist you today. If you would like to leave a recorded testimonial about your experience with Medium Line, say one. If you would like to schedule a callback from Medium Line for one week from today, say two. If you would like to hear about the history of Medium Line, say three. If you'd like to receive the Medium Line email newsletter, say four. If you'd like to receive the print version of Medium newsletter in the mail, please say five. Bye, bye, goodbye. Oh, hang it. Well, that was a nightmare, but it's over now, so as long as it worked, I guess it was worth it. Of course, I won't even know if it worked until I post the episode and listen back to see if we can even hear the ghost. Still, I'm actually glad I couldn't remember the name of the listener who recommended that. Whoever it was doesn't really deserve much credit. Anyway, it's November, and we've got a good, hopefully ghost-free episode here for you now. So, 
Let's begin, shall we? Oh, wait, hold on. One more thing. I should tell you that uh, Cousin Ben will not be back on Out of All Doors. What happened last month was that he acted very apologetic and told me he was going to send me some poems like the old ones and he wasn't going to cause any more trouble. So he sent me the first two poems and they were fine. You heard him. And he seemed genuinely contrite, so I figured everything was good. And then he sent me the third poem at the last minute, and this is my fault, but I was in a time crunch and I didn't listen to it. I just put it in the episode and posted the episode without knowing what the third poem was, which, if you listen to it, you know what it was. It was an insult directed at me and the other Out of All Doors contributors. It was a thinly veiled threat, possibly even a threat on my life, and it was about floods again. So you won't be hearing from Cousin Ben anymore, not on this podcast anyway, so now... Let's begin, shall we? Hey, I just got here. What did I miss? The five people you meet at a turkey hunt. Number one, the Turk. The Turk is a local ambassador of Turkey who misheard the invitation as a Turkish hunt, not a turkey hunt. Well, he's brought his whole extended family with him, and so here he is, ready to spend the entire day, and and what are we going to do with him? I, I don't know. While the Turk is generally welcomed, his complete ignorance of and disinterest in turkeys, Thanksgiving as a tradition, as well as his loud whooping during hunts, makes him, let's just say, not the most favored guest. The Turk's outlandish clothing is easily spotted by even the slowest turkey, his cheek-kissing of other hunters is excessive, and his dessert baklava is usually left untouched. No, Turkey, Dan tried to tell him, but he just said, Yay, Turkey, my country of home. Well, yeah, but Dan tried to say, but he was inundated in more cheek kisses. Number two, the truck. Another mishearing, this sentient self-driving truck, well, an extremely impressive artificially intelligent robot, nevertheless overheard an invitation to the turkey hunt at a recent tailgate, and decided he would be a perfect candidate. Since you can't engineer social graces and AI robots, the sentient truck showed up and started honking its horn and revving its engine, scaring away all the turkeys in a three-mile radius. Even Dan had to admit that the truck was a technical feat that presented a curious paradox in regards to humanity's relation to robots as a master-servant game of existential round-robin, but nobody really wanted this truck around, seeing as it offered zero assistance in hunting turkey, and it seemed indifferent to Thanksgiving tradition in general. Now, whether the truck is capable of feeling interest towards human traditions is another, yeah, okay, very cool think piece, but now we've got all the turkeys, not to mention Dan's boys, scared away by this admittedly masterful feat of engineering. But still. Number three, the trachea. Not even close. Well, great. Now we've got this poor second grade child dressed up as a trachea for his elementary school play on parts of the body, wandering around spooking turkeys. And what is it even, a, tra- a trachea? Is it like a windpipe or is it the, um, you know, the food pipe? But look at him. The poor guy can't even see out of that costume. And where are his parents anyway? Now we're probably going to be out late looking for him because he shouldn't be out here unaccompanied. And how on earth could any man, woman, or child confuse the words turkey and trachea? Number four, Kurt. Just plain unwelcome. Nobody likes Kurt. Go home, Kurt. Number five, turkey mascot. Well, I mean, I guess this is at least appropriate, although it's a little weird to have a big, goofy costume guy of a turkey while we're going out to kill turkeys. 
and this big guy is hanging out handing candy to our kids and the next thing you know the kids are going to see all the turkey corpses and I'm just saying it's a lot to process for a kid you know seeing the dynamic between the two thinking wait why am I killing my friend am I a murderer I mean kids don't need that and why do I have to provide the lesson in mortality just because this clown decided to show up in a turkey costume I mean at least he's not gonna go out there in that ridiculous costume and try to oh come on no, he's got a rifle. He's participating too. Well, this is too weird for me. Dan, you and the kids can have fun. I'm done. No more. I'll buy my turkey from the grocery. Thank you very much. We are very tired and we all want to sleep. We took an informal poll among just us, and it was unanimous. We're exhausted. The night is damp and overcast, but no rain falls. A roadside inn appears, an oasis of cheerily lit windows, with what we all assume to be a sound roof on top. It only takes a little time and a little money before we have a room on the top floor of the inn with what the innkeeper describes as the biggest bed in the whole inn. We choose to take him at his word, and we clump up the rickety stairs to the top floor. We use the key to open the door to our room, and we all troop inside, removing our boots, shoes, and foot bandages, and making parallel bee lines straight for the bed, which is indeed large. We're just about to throw back the covers and crawl in when we notice something important. The bed is not unoccupied. A row of dark, tiny, slumbering faces, snoring in peace, not wearing tiny nightcaps, but we can easily imagine them. Aren't they supposed to be nocturnal? Nevertheless, we have entered the battery. Bats are not like us. They do not put their pants on one leg at a time. On the rare occasions when they even own pants, they crawl all the way into the pants so that their entire bodies are inside one of the pant legs, leaving the other pant leg completely vacant. A bat flew over a crowd while carrying a sign that read, Here begins the bat parade. So the crowd of people stood around waiting for the bat parade to fly overhead, buzzing with excitement. But as the hours ticked by and no more bats appeared, the buzz of excitement mutated into a murmur of displeasure. But what everyone in the crowd had failed to do was look at the back of the bat sign as it flew away. If any of them had, they would have seen the words, Here ends the bat parade, and then they would have thought, Ah, bat parade, not bats parade. The noun is singular. And then they would have gone home and enjoyed their evening. There's a cult wherein the members worship bats, but what they don't know is that bats aren't deities, nor do they even collectively constitute one deity, nor have any bats ever claimed to be deities. The people in this cult just can't get their act together. It's actually pretty sad. You all know that I love bats, but I just want to make sure that none of you assume that I'm associated with the bat-worshipping cult in any way. If you see me out and about and you overhear someone whisper, bat worshiper, and then snicker as I walk past, please correct that person sternly. Unlike the bat worshippers, I know that bats aren't infallible. I just happen to find their few flaws incredibly charming. It is polite, when noticing a bat, to appreciate that bat in your heart. A bat doesn't use a desk, a computer, or a ledger, but it can handle its own business as well or even better than you can, and that includes people with so much business acumen that they've become rich handling nothing but their own business. 
If handling its own business were any more instinctive for a bat, it would probably be too instinctive. Although I'll admit that it's hard for me to articulate or even imagine what the consequences of having the handling of one's own business be too instinctive would be. Sometimes people ask me if the music used for the battery segment was created by a bat. I always get the feeling that they're hoping I'll say, I don't know, followed by a pregnant pause, followed by a friendly, but thanks for asking. There is a woman named Janet who won't, in the presence of bats, admit that she has a name. So bats, if you're listening, now you know the truth. It's Advanced Placement Biology, a high school in the USA, 19th period. This school has very short class periods, and the students are dissecting bats in order to learn a little something about scientific truths, and with a little luck, they'll learn a little something about themselves too, such as whether or not they're capable of grasping scientific truths well enough to pass a multiple choice test on the subject of scientific truths. As the students cut into their bats with taxpayer-funded scalpels, they begin to learn right away. Education is transpiring on a modest scale. The class has a little over 20 students. But then something happens that makes the learning grind to a halt. The students start wishing these bats were alive. But it's a little late for that. Far too much learning has already occurred. Some segments of the battery are sobering, like this one, and the one about the Saints campaign against White Nose Syndrome. Let me tell you about a man who thought there were secret messages meant only for him hidden in the high-frequency echolocation of the calls of bats. He bought some devices to enable him to hear the bats. He bought some devices to record the bats. And he bought a variety of other devices because a device-buying frenzy was upon him. Well, that device-buying frenzy was ultimately his undoing, because one of those devices was a device that was specifically designed to undo its user, and darned if the man who bought it didn't also use it. Anyway, the great potential irony is that if there was a message for the man hidden in the bat's echolocation, it may have been, be selective about which devices you buy. To bats, some bugs are sweet, some bugs are savory, some bugs are salty, some bugs are bland. Some bugs are filling and some bugs are equivalent to a dish that we would consider to be less filling, like a limp salad or a weak soup. To bats, some bugs taste like birthday cake eaten on the one day a year when no one has a birthday. Some bugs taste like glue with spicy red pepper flakes mixed in with it. Some bugs taste like other bugs that you would not expect them to taste like if you base that expectation on their relative lifespans. Lifespan, it turns out, has almost no bearing on how a bug tastes to a bat. To bats, some bugs taste like Mixalord's artificial bug paste, which contains no actual bugs. And lastly, to bats, some bugs taste like more, which is a cute way of saying that they taste so good that the bats would like another helping of those same bugs. We stand around, wondering what to do, mouthing solutions at each other that none of us can quite make out, gesturing at the sleeping bats as if to say, they look like the dwarves from Snow White, don't they? Which they do, but still, we were promised that we could sleep in this huge bed, but all these bats are already in it. And it's not their fault, it's the innkeeper's fault. He should have remembered he'd already given the biggest bed in the end to the bats. The only thing to do is to put all of our foot bandages, boots, and shoes back on, go back downstairs, and give that innkeeper a piece of our mind. Probably one of the loud, indignant pieces. 
Just as we're about to leave the room, an alarm goes off and the bats sit up, yawn, stretch, blink groggily, throw back the covers and fly out into the night through a hole in the window covered by a little curtain that we noticed earlier but didn't comment upon. But even though they're the ones leaving, they can't leave the battery because they take the battery with them wherever they go. So indeed, even though we are staying in the room, it is we who leave the battery. time of the year that makes me think about sauces more than almost any other. You guessed it, Thanksgiving! Hit it! It's time for Thanksgiving, everyone is a winner because they're going to Grandma's house where she's going to make dinner. Sauces are our mainstay on this very special day. When we eat until we sleep and maybe watch the Packers play. There's one special sauce that always gets all the lovin'. Put this on your turkey right when it comes out of the oven. Of course, cranberry sauce is what I'm talking about. It's about the only thing that I'm gonna put in my mouth. There's gravy, and mustards, and butters, and glazes, and cranberry ketchup, one of the foodies' new crazes. 19 crayon recipes in a BuzzFeed article. But Grandma, don't make none of these because she's much too smarticle. Grandma knows I like that right out of the can. So she makes it that way, cause little dollop's the man. Let's take a little trip across the multiverse. Another planet's little dollop's gonna take a verse. Yeah, little dollop from Earth 476 here. That's right. Uh, here we go. I come from an Earth where everyone is evil. Also on my planet, rhyming is illegal. I won't get in trouble, that was an approximate rhyme. But I don't care if there's a law, I still rhyme all the time. Cause like I mentioned, I am evil and everyone knows. On Thanksgiving, tell my grandma all the food she made blows. Got a picture of Hitler on my nightstand. Asked Bin Laden to play bass if I started a band. Okay. I think that's about enough from evil little dollop. 
I hope that has not ruined your Thanksgiving. You say Thanksgiving's your favorite, you know that I understand you. It's one of two times a year that people still like Adam Sandler. The other time I'm referring to is, of course, Hanukkah. One point break, yeah, I promise that I won't get any on ya. Alright, here's what you've been waiting for. A verse from Adam Drent and Jason. A pot, now we're cooking. Oh, if you say pajamas. And I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. At about midnight, gonna make a turkey sandwich. On that sandwich, I'll put something I got from within a can, which contains delicious corn, because you know I'm the man witch. Would put corn on a sandwich, so talk to the hand witch. Would slap anyone down if they said they don't understand this. That's right, corn on a sandwich. You just learned a little dollop recipe. You're welcome. Outfit of a day with the Ghost Bat Queen. The outfit of a day is family. Sitting around the dining room table, discussing gratitude, ceremoniously eating turkey and stuffing, a tall candle right in front of you, and you are running your finger through the flame again and again wishing everyone could spend a few hours inside of each other to see if they biologically experience pain differently, in their bodies and in their minds. Wondering if this would make everyone more empathetic. Wondering how it feels for your grandma to be 5'3 and 85 years old. Wondering how it feels for your cousin to be 6'3 and live in Massachusetts. How it feels for your aunt to see her dragonfly tattoo when she looks over her shoulder in the mirror and what it's like to wake up every morning with her aches and her thoughts and her sailing. Wondering if, when your brother stubs his toe, does it hurt the same as when you stub yours? More? Less? Do your father's thoughts race like yours do? Pass the green beans, says your uncle. You wonder what his green is as you throw each one to him individually, bean by bean. Hello there. My name is Brandon Schmidt, and I'm a new contributor to your program, so thank you for having me, first of all, and you're welcome for my attendance as well. I should tell you that I'm the Assistant Regional Theater Director for Plays and Performances in the Bi-County area, and I've staged such hits 
as Gadzooks, Spinster, Who's at the Door and What Do They Want, the musical, First Floor Pantry, and That's What You Call a Real Good Time Dame. In any case, I recently approached the Outside Doors show host, Andy Dreamt, to see if he'd be interested in letting me share my extensive studies with none other than the possum. And he seemed to be, so here I am. You see, I'm something of a possum connoisseur. It's unusual, I know, but hear me out. I've always admired these clever little devils, for where else in nature do you find such convincing thespians? Sure, you have the bowerbird, that caterwauling ham, who builds such a fine nest for his beloved and goes out toot-toot-tooting to tell the world about it. Well, that's all fine and good. But where is the range? I want to leave the theater having applauded and cried, not just won over by a randy bowerbird. Possums, with their masterful verisimilitude of the death act, were just the animals I needed to get to know more about. They're ugly, people shouted at first. They're gross. And sure, they're nothing to look at. But who among us isn't ugly on the outside and or inside? What, with all our guts and bone marrow? You want to see that? I don't think so. So, I began an investigation into the lives of possums in order to one day be able to write, score, and direct the first possum-themed musical. Everybody today wants animals in their musicals, so let's have a musical with an animal who's actually an accomplished actor. I think we've all seen enough shows about lions in Africa. Whoop-de-doo. What follows is a portion of my journals into learning about possums in order to prepare myself to write and star in my possums musical, tentative title, Oh! Possum the Musical. Now, I'm well aware no one has undertaken such a feat before, but I can assure you I'm more than well equipped to handle such a role. It certainly won't be my first. I'm also aware from reading their biographies that the lives of men who study ground-dwelling mammals always, always end in madness and death. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about possums. From the journal. Day one. I had to remain home as I had an important food-related package that was being delivered to my house. In a fit of giddiness, though, I told myself why not lay down in a heap in front of my door as I heard the delivery man approach, right? To give this playing dead a first go. As the delivery man knocked, I continued to play dead, slumped in a masterful heap. Nevertheless, he couldn't see me through the frosted glass of my front door, so I was forced to give up the ruse and had to stand and accept the package. I asked the delivery man his opinion on possums, and he just said, not bad today. He didn't get a chance to elaborate before he was off back to his truck. Day two. Today I went out in search of possums. I drove the roads around my house looking for them in nearby woods. I found a couple by a drainage ditch near the new mega gym they put up. But these possums weren't only playing dead, they were actually dead. Gross. Not what I'm looking for in a star for my new play, to say the least. Night two. Okay, I learned the possums are nocturnal, so I dressed in all black and went back to the woods with a stage light to see if I could find them. Sure enough, after mere hours, I spotted a pair of shiny eyes high in a tree. There was a possum high above. I turned on the stage light just in time to see his horrible flank recede into the nook of a tree. Exit stage right, I called out into the night. He didn't respond. So I marked the spot on the map and returned the following night. Night three. 
I found the spot again and hunkered down, waiting for the first sign of my new star. I brainstormed possible sets for my play, including a mock-up of the tree I was sitting right under. I started improvising some songs, including Got a Baby on My Back, Dead Wrong, and Nothing's Impossible. Not seeing my friend, I figured what the heck, and started singing the songs out loud. Sure enough, I heard a rustling and turned my stage light on the possum, just in time to see him perform a fine scene of playing dead. He dropped to the limb, looking very morbid. Bravo, I cried to him, and when he saw I was going to applaud until I got an encore, he rose, grumbled, and scurried off. I tried to follow him with the stage light, but he was too quick. Night four. I went back to his spot early to see if I could catch him in his nest or den or whatever and get an insight into his craft, but the whole spot was vacant. He was gone. I started calling out to him, and sure enough, I heard a rustling sound as if he were scurrying away. I followed the sound and discovered a new spot far away from the original. I found him with a group of his friends and thought I'd hit the jackpot until they started screeching and hissing at me and burying their fangs. Save it for the play, right? Anyway. I knew where they were and planned on coming back with some script notes the next night. I spent the next three nights constructing an elaborate possum costume out of pom-poms and fur coats that not only looked the part but also would have made a beautiful dinner jacket for a cast party following the feature. Night 8. I went out in my costume feeling like a possum already and strolled right into their burrow. I called out to them and as I was detailing new ideas for Act 2, Several of them rushed right at me, biting me in the legs and groin. I thought about playing dead, but it didn't seem like that would stay their wrath. I thought this is a perfect scene, the possums turning on their lead as if on Julius Caesar. But it was all I could do to get out of there without turning actually dead. Night 9. Out again in costume, but the nest had moved. Nothing. Boring night. Where are my possums? Night 10 found the possum's new hiding spot and was attacked again by the group. It reminded me of the critics' reviews of my most recent play, Can Anybody Hear Me? Nevertheless, I sustained several major injuries. I have to admire those possums' gusto, though, the way they fully inhabit their roles. I always respect dedication to the role. Night 11. I spent all day crafting the mid-play piano sonata, The Highest Tree, The Sharpest Claws, which I thought might soothe their spirits long enough to brainstorm some plot twists with them. I took my miniature keyboard out to the woods and played as beautifully as I could, but I was attacked instantly again. So feisty. When are they going to play dead? I wrote in my notes before I had to run away. Day 12. I checked with my physician due to the depth of some of my wounds, and he said I should stop immediately. Now, here is the real world again, the stiff and straight do-gooders who have no patience nor respect for the arts. I tried to explain the brilliance of method acting to this dunder-headed doctor, but he entirely missed the point, what with all his talk of lesions and gangrene. Art is suffering, Doc. Get over it. I feel that I'm on the edge of a real breakthrough. Night 12. This time I tried to be as quiet as possible when observing them, using some infrared goggles I'd bought online. The possums looked especially frumpy in the infrared. But as they were rooting around and hissing at one another, I thought, isn't this what art is really about? The 
the simple things, the day-to-day triumphs and tragedies that make up our real lives and that any man or beast can relate to. And it was just as I was having these epiphanies that the possum spotted me and attacked me once again. Day 13. I took what you might call a little sabbatical today, or uh, maybe return to homeostasis days. Anyway, much of my body felt as if it was on the verge of a total breakdown. I couldn't tell if it was dead or just playing dead, but no, I had extreme pain. Night 13. Out I went, into the lair, as you might say, in order to finalize some of my roles. I wanted to get a good cast list, and had already had some emerging players, such as the Scratcher and Mr. Hiss, as well as my female lead, Hideous Helga. Wouldn't you know it, just as I was detailing key components of their roles, they bum-rushed me again with all their claws and teeth. Day 14 and onward, due to my extensive worsening injuries, I've decided to continue planning the play from the comfort of my home. I have a registered home nurse who comes once daily, and I can bounce ideas off of her. I've got my trusty miniature keyboard to compose songs on, and the rest of it will write itself. And though I've been forced to be on a medically induced bed rest, I will miss my players, my little muses. And so now I will go and write the play that they deserve. Once either of my hands regain basic functionality. But watch out, world, for you don't know what's going to hit you when the possums come. And they will come. I'm soaking my journal in blood at this point, so I'm going to sign off for now. But I will see you next on Broadway. Well, folks, it's time to check in again with the antisocial aspect of the outdoor world. We're calling our intrepid young hermit correspondent, Cayman Bird, again to discuss anything that's been going on in the world of hermits. You may recall last time that he is uh, currently out in the field investigating something. We don't even really know what to call it yet. He just has an inkling, a gut feeling that there's something going on, something bigger in the world of hermits than 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 we're fully aware of. And so he's he's following that instinct and uh, we're we're checking in with him again to see if he's made any progress on that. So, Cayman, are you there? I'm here, Adam. Well, Cayman, uh, what updates do you have for us in this area of your expertise, this hermitry? <laughs> Well, I don't think they call it an area of expertise. I mean, more like a strange, bothersome hobby than anything. <laughs> that's uh, that's well put. To start off, I might really like to thank you for reminding me about those old backups of the old forms that the old out of all door forums. The oh the oh the the backups of the out of all doors forums where the the hermits were you yeah you mentioned those last time the hermits had were posting on there constantly we didn't really know what any of that was about but yeah but you think you for reminding me about those because I mean hermits always manage to amaze me at the strange things they do and I managed to find the account of the guy I interviewed about hermits and all that. You remember that? Yeah, I remember. That was on one of our uh, uh, other episodes, I don't know, a few months ago. He was the one that had, yeah, he had that whole philosophy worked out. Mm-hmm. How did you uh, how, how did you manage to find his account? How, would you, how did you get into that? Well, his screen name was literally Thermit Ted's Tiller Door Key Doors. It wasn't very easy to miss that. 
So he just he just worked like the the basic description of his philosophy. He just turned that into his screen name. Just that series of words that he kept repeating. Yeah, although I don't think it's in the same order, but from what I can tell on here, everybody hated his guts. He <laughs> he was not popular, huh? Not in the slightest. I mean, what I can tell, the only reason they let him stay as long as they did was he had this, like, scoreboard document or something they passing around. A scoreboard document? A scoreboard for what? I'm honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, I can't tell what it was, but it looks like they were passing around on private messaging or something. But apparently, everyone hated him because he was really bad about shoving bits of his philosophy into everything, and that even included the scoreboard itself. Well, I mean, based on what we know of him, that does not sound hard to believe that's exactly what he did during your interview with him he wouldn't shut up about it <laughs> from what I can understand apparently someone eventually someone else started passing the copy around and they were all the other hermits were you know they said that person was much more reasonable to work with than him and so somebody somebody else just copied his scoreboard document and then cut him out of the loop so that people wouldn't have to deal with him yeah, that's what it looks like, yeah. I haven't been able to look into it too much this month, but I should have a lot more time to look at the archives next month. It's a lot harder to find hermits during the middle of the winter because they just tend to sit around in their caves all day, don't tend to forage as much and all that. It's really just not worth the extra effort to try and find them, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we will uh, we'll check in with you again next month then and see if you've made any progress. I mean, it does sound like something strange, not necessarily sinister, but there's certainly something that they were trying to keep secret, and it's always hard to tell with hermits if if that's going to amount to anything or not, or if it's going to be anything that, of interest to anyone other than them, but I mean, it's definitely worth pursuing, especially with our show's, you know, interest and emphasis on hermit culture, so I, th- I think this has the potential to be to be exciting, at least for a certain portion of our listenership, so... Uh, well, we'll check in again with you next week, or next month, rather. Yeah. All right, have a good night. Yeah. Yep. You too. You're probably listening to this on Thanksgiving or after, but this is the season for all kinds of big meals with lots of guests, and Gentleman's Mills has so many products and recipes for all of your holiday meal needs, desires, whims, and so on and so forth and such, etc. These are all products you can eat, folks, and doesn't that just say it all? Number one, wow, it's great, cake. Stanley Milgram, eat your heart out. This cake is made with traditional elements in traditional ways, except once the cake is fully baked, you attach a plastic placard that says, wow, it's great, to the top of the cake, though the cake has been engineered to be unexceptional and is in fact not at all better than any surrounding cakes. Guests will flock to this grandstanding cake and declare its greatness even if they themselves cannot sincerely distinguish any inherent greatness in such a regular, regular cake. It's a psychological treat. Number two, developer's treasure. 
Once it goes in the software developer's mouth, it does not come out. Number three, the unchompable entree. At last, you can chomp the unchompable. Number four, fake turtle discovery kit. Always wanted to eat turtle, but have been too horrified to go through the process of killing and dismantling a turtle from its extensive shell network? Big Fake Good Turtle is a delicious bakeable treat with a hard tortilla chip shell giving way to a tasty casserole center shaped into a fun, dead reptilian shape. It's easy to pick the tortilla chips from the casserole, and the best part is that Tasty Fake Tortoise has no tendons or viscera to hack through. Now you can brag to your friends that while they're suffering through leftovers, you're eating turtle tonight. Only with Gentleman's Mills Presents Unreal, the Turtle Meal. Number five, Total Recall Edible Edition. This bakeable treat has been designed to look like the DVD cover of Total Recall. The words are not legible, but you can kind of get a sense of it. Number six, Ty Cobb's Tycoon. Aren't you tired of having to wait to turn off your blender before enjoying the tasty treats you've been so happily blending? You want to eat it up now. Well, with Ty Cobb's Tycoon, you can now eat the food as it's being blent. Ty Cobb's Tycoon comes with a mouthpiece on top of the blender you can use to suction food into your waiting maw the moment you start to blend. It's an intense, progressive, and time-saving way to eat all your favorite nourishments, endorsed posthumously by famous ball batter Ty Cobb. Number seven, Gobbler Cobbler. This apple cobbler does have hints of turkey hidden within. Number eight, Balloon Biscuits. Watch the cousins sink their teeth into a fluffy buttermilk biscuit only to reach the balloon hiding within. Better hope the balloon is not pierced or you're dealing with blood everywhere. Number nine, Hamb. In the spirit of turducken, this is a Christmas ham stuffed with lamb, which has been stuffed with clams, some of which have been removed from their shells. Number 10, Dairy Spray. Get your daily dose of delicious daily dairy dosage with this product. We put a mix of milk, kefir, and yogurt in a common household spray bottle that can be sprayed right into the mouth and stored under the kitchen sink with the other spray bottles. Number 11, Research. Consume this vial stolen from a university laboratory by a Gentleman's Mills co-founder. It's the only one of its type, the season's most exclusive treat. Number 12, Treaty Treat. Eat the meager piece of paper keeping Israel and Palestine from loggerheads. The Gentleman's Mills co-founders doused it in hollandaise sauce and sprinkles for your sincere gentleman's delight. Treaty Treaty. This treaty had elements of treatiness to begin with. Number 14. Grips Grip Chips. Early customer reviews have called these extra grippable chips too sticky, but we'd rather be safe than sorry. You'll never lose another precious chip again to common human carelessness. Number 15, Pencil Tartaner. These graphite pencils have been dunked in a delectable French lemon cream tart. Number 16, Ay, Dios mío, el tortuga es muy sabroso, señor. Our Hispanic-friendly version of Turtle Imposter features the type of authentic tortilla chips you can only find in the exotic foods section of your local grocer. Number 17, Hamdinger. The Hamdinger is back for a limited time only. Number 18, Restless Life. This delicious holiday spread will not sit still long enough to let someone paint a picture of it. Number 19, not your grandma's cranberry juice. This cranberry juice isn't nearly of the caliber of your grandma's favorite brand, but it's pretty good. Number 20, Yam Nation. 
Have seconds of fun with this big box of yams in the shape of your favorite UN ratified nations. Look at South Korea. There's Bolivia. Papa has Sierra Leone. Yam Nation. Number 21, peas on the cob. These peas have been painstakingly affixed to a discarded corn cob with an edible adhesive made out of a delicately balanced combination of two inedible adhesives. And number 22, candy corn candy cane. This lumpen holiday specialty is made from several candy corns stacked and smashed into the general shape of a candied cane. The candy corns have each been artificially flavored to taste like candy cane. Eat them freely or use them as a decoration for your favorite Tannenbaum. Tahee! The day after Corndog died, Dad and I went to the barn to clean out the stall where he used to sleep. He was allowed to sleep in the house if he wanted, and every once in a while he would. But most nights, especially in the last year or two, he had spent them in the barn. The stall where he slept was the same one that ten years earlier Dad had fixed up for Queen Cobra, Corndog's mother. The heat lamp he had set up for her was still hanging there and in the winter Dad would turn it on to keep Corndog warm. The hole that Queen Cobra had chewed in the chicken wire was still there too, but it wasn't really necessary now. The door was always left open. The stall was scattered with items that Corndog had hoarded over the years, mostly books. We'd all figured out by then that Corndog could read, and we didn't begrudge him taking the books from the house to the barn. We weren't exactly avid readers ourselves, so we never missed him that much. As we were cleaning out the straw, I found a big pile of old Lynch's Cash and Carry weekly ads. Lynch's Cash and Carry, in case you've forgotten, was the name of our family's grocery store. Mom would print out the ad each week on the brightest color of printer paper she could find, keep a few back to take down to the store, and drive the rest directly to the office of the Kenton Inquisitive Citizen to go out in the Wednesday paper. Corndog, apparently, had been amassing them for quite a while. He had ads in every color of the rainbow. I picked up the canary yellow ad from the top of the pile. It was from the week of April 9th, 2012. The pop special that week had been Big Red 2 liters for 99 cents. Incidentally, we stopped carrying Big Red. A year or so ago, the distributor decided that we weren't selling enough and it wasn't worth their while to drive their delivery truck so far out of the way to LaRue to drop off only three or four cases at a time. As I turned to throw the ad into the trash can we'd brought out to clean out the stall, I noticed that the back was covered with what looked like rows of scribbles, but turned out to be strained and barely legible handwriting. I held it up to the light coming through the barn window and read this. I've noticed a very strange thing that the humans do. Every once in a while, someone will fall very deeply asleep, and then they'll dig a big hole and put that someone down in the dirt. It happened last month to Pseudo-Dionysus. He fell asleep, and they put him in the dirt right behind the Benson's trailer. Then last week, the girl who lived next door fell asleep, too. And her dad dug a big hole right in the middle of God Almighty's corral and put her in the dirt there. When he was done... He was so angry that he went into the house and got his gun. And when he came back out, he made God Almighty fall asleep. Now he's in the dirt, too, right next to the girl. For some reason, all this makes me feel very lonely. 
so I thought I'd see if I could make the squiggles that disappear when you look at them, and use them to bring back all the happy and interesting things I've done. And sure enough, it seems I can. Corndog's memoirs went on for pages and pages, describing the day he learned to read, his encounters with Pseudo-Dionysus, and scores of episodes that I haven't recounted in these chronicles, and probably couldn't if I tried. I would read a page and hand it to Dad. He would read it and yell out things like, Well, I'll be damned, or So that's what happened to my split shot. Often we were in the stories, too. And we relived the time that we were fishing in the pond, and Corndog waded out into the shallow wind to catch the bluegill in his mouth as they swam past. And the time that Corndog jumped into the bed of Dad's truck and rode all the way to town with him, and had to spend the day locked in the cigarette closet at the store until Dad could drive him home. We stayed out there for hours reading, and finally decided that we'd clean out the stall the next day. But we never did. The last entry in Corndog's journal was written on what was, at the time, the current week's ad. Dad had marked down Pepsi 12-packs to 50 cents below wholesale in the hopes that the loss leader would bring some customers in. But that was still 75 cents more than Kroger charged, and he figured that it wouldn't work. It didn't. The writing on the back of the ad said this. Today I'm feeling very tired indeed, and I think that tomorrow, probably, they'll put me in the dirt. Down there, I suppose, there won't be any books to read, and even if there are, it'll probably be too dark to see them. A little while ago, this would have made me very sad, because I still haven't found the book that says where all the animals and plants and humans come from, but I've read almost all the books in the house anyway, so maybe we just don't have that one. So I don't know for sure, and I guess I'm not going to, but I've been thinking about it a lot as I've been writing and remembering all the things that I did while I was up here on top of the dirt, and it seems to me that the story must go something like this. A long time ago there weren't any houses or roads or trees or grass or humans or animals. There was just dirt and mud everywhere, and in the middle of it a big magic cow. And the big cow was lonely, so he started to dig in the mud, and he found all the plants and animals and humans buried there. As he dug, he would pull out the plants and animals and humans and put them in big piles. He put all the trees in one pile, and all the chipmunks in another pile, and all the humans and the fish, and the whole basset hounds, and the whole labs, each in their own pile. And when he had finished a pile, he would look at the creatures in it and say, Chipmunks, you will love each other, since you're all of one kind. Each of you will love the others, and the others will love you back. Or, Fish, you will love each other, since you're all of one kind. Each of you will love the others, and the others will love you back. And so on and so on, to all the piles of living things. But then, when he was done with all the others, he came to Corndog, and he was the only one in his pile. Oh, I'm sorry, Corndog, said the cow. I must have missed some. So he started digging again in the mud with his snout and his hooves. And he dug and he dug and he dug. He dug for so long that the other animals began to leave. All the trees walked back to the woods and planted themselves in the dirt. And they loved each other, because they were all made of wood. And the humans all went off and built barns and houses and lived in them. And they loved each other because they all could talk, and so on and so on, until all the creatures had 
left except Corndog. And now the cow climbed out of the great hole he had dug and said to him, I'm sorry, Corndog. It seems that you're the only one. And Corndog looked up to him and asked, Then who am I supposed to love? The big magic cow thought about this for a long time. Finally, he said, I suppose you should love all the other creatures that are not like you, and you should love them because they are not like you, and that will be your own special task. And will they love me back? asked Corndog. The cow again thought about this for a long time. I don't know, he replied. Maybe. Oh, but Corndog, we did love you. As best we could, we did. Close your eyes. Lie down in a position suitable for relaxation, and then, to top it all off, relax. Because that's what these visualization exercises are all about. I'm trying to help you relax so that you can renew your spirit and come away from them feeling revitalized and ready to tackle the many problems and unpleasant situations your real life presents you with. But recently there's been some complaining that the visualization exercises aren't very relaxing. In fact, some people have accused them of being outright stressful. I disagree. I think that encountering difficulties within the visualization exercises is good for you because you always overcome them, see? Do you get it now? So you're visualizing yourself overcoming these problems, or at the very least, encountering the problems, but not allowing them to interfere with your peace and relaxation. That's what makes the out-of-all-doors visualization exercises distinctive and, frankly, more effective than our competitors' visualization exercises. But, in order to show that we really do listen to and consider your feedback, and because during this season of thanks we really are grateful for our loyal listenership, I'm going to concede to the whiners and present a visualization exercise completely devoid of conflict of any kind. It's going to be purely relaxing without any moments of potential discomfort or unease because that's what you think you want. You find yourself ensconced in a clear plastic bubble floating over a late autumn landscape. You are very comfortable inside the bubble. The temperature is perfect and your view of the late autumn landscape below you is not impeded in any way by the plastic, which is perfectly transparent. You cannot, however, hear anything beyond the bubble, and so you float onward in silence, the late autumn landscape scrolling beneath your feet, which are inside of comfy socks, which are inside of comfy slippers, which are inside of comfy slipper covers. All is serene. The air inside of the bubble doesn't smell like anything at all. Also, there is no gravity inside the bubble, so the bubble is floating over the late autumn landscape and you're floating within the bubble and wearing a loose-fitting one-piece garment with no elastic buttons, zippers, snaps, or other fasteners of any kind, not even laces. 
Also, to those outside the bubble, the bubble is invisible, as are its contents, which are just you, your garment, your socks, your slippers, and your slipper covers. You watch as the bare tops of late autumn trees pass beneath you, the bases of their trunks surrounded by fallen brown and yellow leaves. You see a family of deer, and they're just doing whatever. They seem fine. A bird flies past your bubble, headed in the opposite direction. Well, more power to it. It's not encased in an invisible bubble, so anything could happen to it. Now this next part shouldn't stress you out at all. I'm telling you right now that nothing bad is going to happen. This is just to demonstrate how impervious to everything you are while you're in the bubble. An unmanned airplane crashes into the bubble and just bounces off. You don't even feel the slightest jostle. You look down and you see a narrow, unpaved, late autumn road winding through the countryside. There are a couple of cars on it, and they might be equipped with the loudest horns ever installed on a motor vehicle, and their drivers might be laying on those horns constantly with no provocation whatsoever, but you never know, because all you hear is the sound of your own healthy breathing. At this point, it should be noted that you are not trapped inside of a transparent plastic bubble, nor were you put inside of it against your will. I can already hear you guys trying to spin this clear plastic bubble as some kind of prison and being like, oh, Adam, imprisonment is stressful. Well, nice try, but I'm one step ahead of you. This clear plastic bubble ride is entirely voluntary, and I already know where you're going to try to flank me now. You're going to say, well, Adam, we sure do feel safe in this bubble. That's true, but it's also very boring, and boredom isn't relaxing. Boarding makes people restless, and restless is the opposite of restful, which is a synonym of relaxed, which is a word which represents a state of being you claim this visualization exercise exists to promote in We the Listeners. But here's my counterpoint, smart guy or smart gal. You're not born in the clear plastic bubble. You're actually having a great time just marveling at how relaxed you feel. The level of relaxation that you're experiencing in the bubble is such that it's actually highly stimulating. It's the kind of relaxation that you can both fully experience and also step back and ponder simultaneously, which is what you're doing. You've never experienced a relaxation so untainted before, and it's very, very interesting to experience it now. You're far too focused on examining this new level of relaxation with intense fascination to be bored. But I already know you're not going to just let this go and accept this perfectly relaxing visualization exercise I've cooked up for you. You ungrateful listeners are intent on not relaxing, and knowing that, I've anticipated your next complaint. You're going to say that you can't relax in the bubble because you're alone. You feel lonely in the bubble, isolated. But come on, it's temporary. You've only been in the bubble for a few minutes. You can't feel relaxed unless you're in the constant presence of other people. Give me a break. But just so I can prove to you that Out of All Doors cares about your relaxation first and foremost, we'll say that the invisible bubble has the power to intuit your deepest desires before you even feel them. So that before you even become conscious of the seed of loneliness beginning to sprout inside of you, the bubble will have already caused your ideal companion to materialize inside the bubble with you. And before you say anything, yes, I know, there are probably some of you out there who are made uneasy by the bubble's ability to get inside your head like that. But the bubble isn't a conscious entity, it's just like an impersonal force. It isn't violating your mind. There's no reason to stress about that. It only uses the information it gleans from your subconscious to help you relax. It's not going to exploit you or sell that information to advertisers or anything, I promise. You won't even feel it happening. You'll just be contentedly, relaxedly riding along in the bubble and suddenly your ideal companion will be there too. 
but their arrival will not startle you, and you'll realize that ideal companionship was indeed exactly what you wanted in this moment, even though you had not yet been aware enough of that fact to even wish for it. And before you even say it, yes, I know some of you need alcohol to relax, but that's fine, the bubble can get you alcohol. And before you even say it, yes, I know some of you need heroin, but the bubble can get that for you too, that's fine, it's easy. Listen, there's nothing the bubble can't do to help you relax, okay? The bubble is a limitless agent of perfect relaxation, and the sooner you can accept that, the sooner you can actually get on with the relaxing, if that's actually what you want. Or is that not what you want? Do you just want to watch me scramble around for an entire visualization exercise, so desperate to help you relax that I drive myself crazy trying to anticipate your every objection to the way I'm running things? Well, congratulations, that's what you got. Enjoy it. Open your eyes and take the smug satisfaction of having taken advantage of out-of-all-doors desire to please with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 15th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Casey By, Denise Wolf, Grang Lynch, Cayman Bird, KT McVeigh, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and JJ Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you can rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 16 of Out of All Doors. 